It's a blessing to be together in the Lord's house this Lord's Day at this Christmas season as we turn our attention to the book of Matthew and consider what Matthew has to say about the coming of our Lord. When we think about the idea of Christmas, many things may come to your mind. Perhaps it's um, memories, nostalgic memories of Christmas's past. Perhaps it's regret of things said or maybe things that you wish you would have said before you lost the opportunity. Perhaps it's simply that you're overwhelmed with all the plans and the parties, the decorations and the events of the coming weeks. Hopefully you take time to meditate upon the true meaning of Christmas and what it means to consider the birth of our Lord because Christmas is much more than a simple idea, but it is the coming of our Lord. It is the beginning of the greatest event in the history of all the world, the the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christmas season presents the church with a unique opportunity because even though we live in a mostly godless society and our culture has uh, become so massively secularized that, that many people don't think much about God anymore, and the knowledge of the Bible has, has sunk to probably an all-time low in our nation, still the fact that Christ was born in a manger is often celebrated, and we see things in our society that, that point to that. And as I reflected on the Advent season and considered what the emphasis for our church might be this year, the question came to my mind, what is it that each of the Gospels, the four Gospels, say about Christ? We learn of Christ in His Word, and we're blessed to not have just one account of our Lord's life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension, but but four accounts of that, each from a little different perspective. So in the month of December, we'll look at each of the Gospels and consider from the opening verses of those Gospels what was first and foremost in the minds of the writers when they set about the task of recording for us their eyewitness testimony about Jesus Christ. I love biblical theology. If you, um, you, and you probably think, well, you're the pastor, you better love theology, and you're right. I I make a distinction between biblical theology and systematic theology in that biblical theology looks at the the entire scope of how God has revealed himself to man and considers the connections in that. Because perhaps you were like me and has spent much of your Christian life seeing this great distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I began to realize a little bit before I went to seminary, and especially in seminary, the great connections between the Old Testament and the New, and how that, that Christ was promised in the Old Testament. And then we see that prom- those promises fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. So it's exciting for me to think about what the Gospels say. And particularly this morning, we'll look at the Gospel of Matthew. Now, my goal in this series is not simply to have something to put on the website because it's Advent. It's not just to help you think about the Bible for a few hours each week before you rush off to the mall. However, I do want you to think about God's Word, and certainly at this time of year, it's a great time to consider these things. But my goal, as I've said, is to look at what the Bible says from the the pens of those who actually witnessed Christ. And while Matthew and John were not present 
at the birth of Christ. None of the gospel writers were. We do read that John, the apostle, and the author of the gospel of John was present at Christ's death. And Matthew walked with Jesus. And some, many commentators think that he was likely our Lord's scribe, in a sense, to record the things that happened during Jesus' ministry. And of all four, of course, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I also have another goal, and this is somewhat of a, uh, of a secret agenda that I hope comes through. Perhaps I should wait until my boxes are unpacked before I tell you my secret agenda for this church as your new pastor. But my secret motive in this series is that we would love Christ more. And that we would have a more robust understanding of God's word. And that we would especially enter the new year, and, and maybe you're like me and, and others who, who take up a new Bible reading plan. Maybe you'll start with Matthew 1, where we're going to be reading this morning. But I hope we come through this series thinking more about Jesus, loving Jesus more, understanding how Christ was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. That is my hope. And my hope is also this, that if you don't know Christ, that you'll see Christ in his word. And that, that God would stir in your heart, would awaken you with a desire to know him and to confess your sins and trust in him as your only hope of salvation. I've titled this series, What Child Is This? from the Christmas song. So please keep that question in mind as we go through this and perhaps even through the week in the busyness of this season, you can think about who is Jesus Christ? What did he come to do? And what does it mean for us to follow him. So let us pray and then we'll go to our text in Matthew 1. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a rich mine of treasures. And Lord, we, we can only hope to scratch the surface of it. Lord, but would you reward our study not because we're worthy, but because your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and, and it works within the lives and the hearts of your people. Lord God, would you do your work among your people, and Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, 
and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. I don't know how many of you might be musicians, but if you've ever been part of singing or playing an instrument for a major musical work such as Handel's Messiah, you'll know that the overture is what begins the piece. And in that overture, you find notes and sections of songs that you will see later in the work. And if you've ever rehearsed such a piece, then you recognize those bars of music and know how they foreshadow that which is to come. And when we think of the gospel and their opening lines, and especially the birth narratives, as we have read a section of this morning in our text, you see that they are, in a sense, the overture for the book. They tell you what is to come, and there's there's shadows within that of what you're going to see in the rest of the book. Now, you may not see that that the genealogy that we read and the beginning of this chapter is as beautiful as the overture to Handel's Messiah, but I hope that as we look at this chapter, and particularly at verses 1 and then verses 21 through 23, you'll see the beauty a little bit more clearly. I'll point you to an outline that I trust will guide our thinking um, as we consider this text. There's There's much that couldn't be said, of course, in answer to the question, what child is this? Who is Jesus Christ? But we'll look at three things this morning from this text. One, Christ is a son. Secondly, he is a savior. And thirdly, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the very first line of Matthew's gospel tells us that Christ is a son. We know, of course, he's the son of God. He sometimes calls himself the son of man. But Matthew wants us to know something different about Jesus Christ. He says he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, we might ask the question, why would Matthew start with that? Why is that his opening line? Well, remember how we said that that this is like an overture? It points to what is to come. Matthew is connecting the Old Testament with the New. He's saying Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he's given us the genealogy to prove that. Now, if he, he wants to connect his readers with the Hebrew scriptures and prove that Christ was the very fulfillment of them. 
Matthew quotes the Old Testament about 55 times in his gospel. We could compare that to the other three gospels who all three together amount to about 65 times. 12 times in Matthew, he speaks explicitly that some event was the fulfillment of a particular prophecy. We saw that in our text as well. And he gives his mostly Jewish original audience layer upon layer of proof that Christ was and is the long-awaited Messiah. His opening line here ties the writing of the New Old Testament with the New and shows that Christ, the, the grand subject of his eyewitness testimony, was the descendant of David and of Abraham. And he does that by providing a genealogy. If you've read through the Old Testament, perhaps you're like me, and, and you kind of get bogged down in the early chapters of 1 Chronicles with all the genealogies. Well, those were important to the Jewish people. It connected them to people and to the land. Much in the same way as, as a person today might take a DNA test to show their connection, their genetic connection to a significant person, Matthew proves Christ's connection to David and Abraham by listing the intervening family members. Now, we have to recognize that his account is abbreviated. There's, there's some generations that are skipped here. Not every single descendant is listed. Um, in Hebrew genealogies, sometimes they will do that. And sometimes son can also mean grandson. And so this is not necessarily a, a precise genealogy. It is a a connecting genealogy that, that proves that Christ is the son of Abraham and of David. He, he has a pattern here, and he uses it to, to show different events and, and emphasize different people and help us see major periods in Israel's history. And it is a, a three sets of 14, and he shows us that in the text, that, that 14 generations from Abraham to David and then from David to the exile, and then from the exile to the coming of our Lord. You think about Abraham, and that was a, a pivotal point, and, and really the, the genesis of the Israelite nation, in that God called Abraham, this idol worshiper from Ur of the Chaldees, to himself and said, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing to the nations. He gave him the covenant promises. He was the recipient of the covenant promises and said that I will make of you a great nation. David, of course, was the quintessential king. He was, he was the man after God's own heart. He was the, the, the type of the Messiah that was to come. The exile, of course, was pivotal in the history of, of the nation of Israel because as we read in the prophets leading up to the time of, of the exile, just a, a period of, of very wicked kings. And I thought even this morning as we read this text and, and some of these men who were in the line of Christ were wicked men. Rehoboam and various kings in the Old Testament did not follow the Lord. And yet God worked in their family line, and Christ came as, as a descendant of David. But the exile was the time in which God's people were forced out of the land. The temple, the place where God dwelt, was destroyed, and the people found themselves lamenting by the, by the rivers and by the canals in Babylon. 
What a significant event in Israel's history. There's various individuals that are highlighted here. Of course, Judah is, is within the line of Christ, and Christ was a descendant from the, the family of Judah. That was a prophecy as well. Various women are mentioned in this prophecy, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Ruth. Some of these women were of ill repute, and several of them were Gentiles, which is another foreshadowing of the Gospel of Matthew and how we see that the Gospel comes not just for the people of Israel, but for the nations, for the Gentiles as well. Notice that this is a genealogy of Joseph. It shows that Jesus was the legal son of Joseph, though not his biological son. First of all, we see that he was the son of David. As we've already said, that David was, was Israel's greatest king. Of course, Saul came before that, but, but we see God's blessing upon David in a special way. He was the one that put down the enemies of Israel. He was the one that, that ruled the people of God. He was the conqueror of Israel's foes, and he was the prototype of the coming Messiah. In 2 Samuel 7, we see God's promise to David that his throne would be established forever. Remember in that text that, that David wanted to build a house for the Lord. He had built an elaborate house for himself, and he, he wanted to build this house for the Lord. And he, had, he made plans to move forward. And then God, through the prophet Nathan, said to him, No, you will not build a house, but God will build for you a house, meaning a lineage, meaning a kingdom that will last forever. But we see those hopes dashed in those wicked kings. And then in the exile and, and in the return back to the nation of Israel, it was only a shadow of what it had been. And it left the people of God, the Israelites, wondering, how will this prophecy be fulfilled? How can God establish David's throne forever? Look at what we have. It's only a shell of the magnificent temple of Solomon. How can this be restored? We see that Christ was also the son of Abraham. We've said already that he was the father of the Jewish people. He was the recipient of the covenant promises. He was blessed to be a blessing. All nations were to be blessed through him. So Christ was a son. He was a son of David and a son of Abraham. Secondly, our text tells us that he is the Savior. Look at what the angel told Joseph there. He said that, that you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's, it's wonderful to see the Christmas story, and, and next week, Lord willing, you'll, you'll hear it in the words of Scripture and, and see the children act it out. But you, various gospel writers tell different parts of it. And, and what we have here in Matthew 1 is from the perspective of Joseph. And we see that, that Mary and Joseph were betrothed or were engaged. And before they came together, lo and behold, Mary is pregnant. And Joseph is, is dismayed, obviously. In the, script, the text says that, that Joseph was, um, he considered these things. And, and you think that often, sometimes scripture probably doesn't 
give you the full range necessarily of emotions that this man must have experienced because he was troubled. He was not sure what to do. Here his wife was expecting and he knew that, that he was not the father of this child, that, that she was with whom she was pregnant, but he didn't know what to do. He, so therefore he resolved to divorce her quietly. This was within the realm of the law, but honestly he could have made it public. By the letter of the law of the Old Testament, Mary could have been stoned because of the appearance of sin here. But he considered these things, it says in verse 20. And the angel appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christ came to be a savior. Abraham was not that savior. We see how Abraham sinned multiple times and and had a pattern of lying about his wife and who she was in relation to him. Moses was not that savior. He, He did not obey God fully. Joshua, of course, whose name means Jehovah saves. He was not that savior. David sinned. He was not that savior. And as we mentioned earlier, the Old Testament ends with the nation restored to the land from the time of exile, yet it was only a shadow of what was it was before. O. Palmer Robertson is a, is a modern-day biblical scholar and has written um, various things, and I loved what he said about the, the condition of unfulfilled hope into which Jesus was born. He said, no king descended from Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, and David, reigned on the throne of Israel. No singular suffering servant had arisen who would bear in himself the blameworthiness of sins, deserving divine retribution. No glory greater than Solomon's had filled the reconstructed temple. Nations to the ends of the earth had not willingly submitted themselves to Messiah's righteous rule. The created order of sun, moon, stars, earth, and creatures had not experienced radical renewal by removal of the curse. And the graves of Israel and the nations remained full. The world into which Jesus came was a dark place. Remember, there had been no prophetic word for 400 years that the the prophets themselves had gone silent. And the people of God existed kind of, they probably felt like they were in this this state of ambiguity where they didn't know what was going to happen. They had these promises, and yet they seemed probably at times kind of dead and dry and wondering, when will the time come? When will we see this Messiah? When will there be one like David who sits on the throne? What is this suffering servant that... Isaiah speaks of, where is our hope? They were waiting. They were waiting for a Savior. And the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The word Jesus, the name Jesus, is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Joshua, which we said is Jehovah saves He is the Savior of His people. 
Now you might read this and you, you might say, well, he's the savior of all the Jewish people. But if you continue to read through Matthew and the Gospels, you, you recognize that there are those within the Jewish people that very adamantly and strongly reject the message of Christ. So you have to wonder who are his people? Who are the people of God that he came to save? Well, he came to save his own. Those that the Father gave him, it says in John. You, you learn that, that those that he came to save are the Messiah people. The ones that, that repent and confess Christ and believe in him and trust in him for salvation. We also see that it's not just for the Jews. It is for the nations. For that what, what the gospel of Matthew ends with where he says, go into all the world and, and, and proclaim the gospel to the nations, teaching them to obey whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the world. We see that that's not just something that's, that's tacked on and out of character, but that throughout the gospel of Matthew, that the message is that the gospel is for the nations. It is for the world. It is for those who will follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came not to save them from Roman oppression because this idea of a Messiah had become kind of convoluted in the midst of all their waiting and hoping and wondering what this Messiah figure, who he was and what he would be like. And, and they were under the thumb of the Romans. And so naturally they began to think it was someone that would be one that threw off the oppressor. But no, he says he will save them from their sins. This world that we live in today is dark. And, and if you think about it very much and if you watch the news very much, you see how dark it is. And it can become very depressing. But we have a Savior that came to save us from our sins. From it, to meet our greatest need. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners in this room because Adam's sin has been passed down to us. So we have that original sin, but we also sin. We commit sins because we're sinners. And Jesus came to be the Savior from our sins. Finally, we see that Christ was not just a son, a son of David and a son of Abraham. He is the savior that this world needs to save them from their sins. And he is, as verse 23 tells us, Emmanuel, God with us. Now God, if you read from the earliest pages of scriptures, communed with his, his creation, with, with, his, with mankind. God spoke with Adam in the garden. He gave him particular stipulations of what he could and couldn't do. He gave him a glorious garden to enjoy. And, and there was communion with God in the garden. Of course, Adam sinned and, and brought sin upon all mankind by his first sin. But yet God continued to deal with him. And he gave to Adam and Eve, the covenant promise that we read in Genesis 3.15, that, that first seed of the gospel. And God has spoken to his people down through the ages. He spoke to Adam. He spoke to Noah. He spoke to Moses. And we see that in as, as God gave the law to Moses, 
And as he gave him instructions for the, the tabernacle, the place where God actually dwelt in his presence, in the Holy of Holies, that that tabernacle was central to the camp of Israel. Remember how the Israelites set up their, tent, their tents, their homes, in such a way that they were all facing the tabernacle. They wanted to have God's presence central in their midst, in their camp. And so we see that, that Christ came, that he is God with us. And so God has always dwelt with his people in some way, but here we read, and, and imagine with me for a moment, that here is Joseph receiving this dream from the angel, this, this instruction for him to go ahead and marry Mary, and to, to not be afraid, the, the angel tells him. And then it says that he will be the Savior, he will save his peoples from her, their sins. And then he said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I just imagine Joseph maybe waking up in a start if he was, if he was asleep during this dream. I don't know the exact nature of it, but realizing Emmanuel, God with us, that's, that's what Isaiah 7.14 means. When, the, when that was prophesied, this is the fulfillment of it. And my wife, my soon-to-be wife, will be the one that bears the Christ child, that, that is the very embodiment of God's presence upon earth. Because if you read Isaiah 7, and, and as an aside, let me tell you that if you read the Gospel of Matthew, please take time to investigate where he says, this was fulfilled according to the prophet. Go back and find that reference and read that chapter because it is so often illuminating to help you understand what Matthew is saying and how he's using that prophecy and, the, and showing you how that is fulfilled in Christ. However, if you go back and read Isaiah 7, it's a little complex. You might need a study Bible or a commentary to understand the original meaning of it. But here Matthew records for us what the angel said and how... The angel brings it to Joseph and then therefore brings it to us to say, this is who Jesus is. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. Christ humiliated himself. He became man. He took on flesh. And we think of that time and we think of the glory of Christ and, and how he, that even though he was divine, he humbled himself and took upon himself the form of, his, of a servant. The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that in question 27 about Christ's humiliation, and it talks about how it consisted in him being born, and that in a low condition. He was not heralded by, by in, in, in any important way. He was made under the law. He underwent the miseries of this life. He suffered and 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 lived as a man because he was a man. And he endured the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. And he was buried and he continued under the power of death for a time. Christ becoming man, Emmanuel, God with us, involved all of those things that Jesus did for us. Christ became flesh. So we see in this text, Christ is a son. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. 
We said that Abraham was blessed to become a blessing. Christ, the descendant of Abraham, the earthly descendant of Abraham, was not blessed to be a blessing. He was cursed to be a blessing to us. He endured the wrath of God. He endured the curse of the cross so that he might be our Savior. If you are outside of Christ and don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I invite you. In fact, I command you to come to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent of your sins and come to him in faith. And if you are in Christ, take comfort in knowing that Christ is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He came to dwell with us in our circumstances. He is God with us. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we thank you for your word that shows us, Lord Jesus, that you are the fulfillment of all of these prophecies and that you are Emmanuel, God with us. We pray, O oh God, that you would give us a renewed desire to know you, that as we read your word, especially at this Christmas season, that we would, we would dig in and find truths that perhaps we've glossed over in the past. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to take comfort in knowing that you are our Savior and that you are God with us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.